This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Agua. Here's what the Fed is saying. The Fed is saying we need to destroy the economy or hurt it real bad. We need to make sure the unemployment rate goes up, which means you may not have a job because of what the Fed is doing right now. This is how they're going to save the economy? By destroying the economy? Huh? We got to talk about this. You have to understand this because it's going to affect your pocketbook. This is the Rick Sanchez Podcast. I'm Rick Sanchez, and we always like to talk about lessons, right? Because I think it's really important that we understand the difference between doing something which makes you grow and get better and something that maybe you need to watch out for. For example, what do we always say? The most important thing you can do, whether you're a business person or whether you're a husband or a wife or you want to just be good at being a son or a daughter, whatever it is, you, growth comes from routine. So you need to establish a routine and you need to be able to get that routine down. And we really believe in that. And the other thing that we often talk about, and there's an example in the news of this, stick as much as you can to what you know. Stick as much as you can to what you know. There's something going on in particular today, which makes us want to highlight this. I don't know if you've heard the news, but in fact, uh, here, let's let's play this uh, first clip. This sets this whole thing up with what's going on right now with Twitter. Just days after Elon Musk took control of the social media giant, paying $44 billion for it, he suddenly fired a huge chunk of the staff, raising questions about the company's future and its ability to moderate content and misinformation. They say they're going to fire like 50% of the staff. 50% of the staff, Elon? Are you serious? I mean, th th this looks like a free fall to me. I'm sorry. I mean, so what's he going to do? Is Elon Musk going to now take money from Tesla and pump that money to salvage Twitter? Because it certainly looks like that's the plan. And what does that signal then to the shareholders of Tesla? So... You know, the funny thing is here, and, and I'll just say what I believe because I think there's a there's a lesson here, whether you're listening to the sound of my voice and you're interested in buying uh, Twitter stock or whether you're interested in buying Tesla stock or whether you're just want, using this as an example to gauge what's going on in the market. It, it's kind of weird because here's the problem with the business model. Elon Musk is kind of uh, an engineer type, right? I guess it's the right brain kind of guy, you know? He knows numbers. But now he's buying into a left brain business. I mean, Musk is like a numbers guy. He's an engineer. This is not a creative dude, right? He's not like the people person. He's more like a numbers cruncher, design stuff, engineering, and that kind of thing. Um like Steve Jobs, right? There's a lot of Gates. There's a lot of guys like that, and good on them, right? But it seems like a lot of these guys suddenly get successful with one business, and they think because they understand widgets, they can understand everything. And sometimes just because you know how to grow widgets doesn't necessarily mean you know how to grow something else, right? So um, he's, he's going after people where before he said he would never do such a thing. Remember, he said he wanted to fix Twitter, make it more democratic and stop Twitter from going out there and attacking people like Donald Trump or, you know, canceling people. And I think, Scotty, isn't he canceling? Is, it, did, did, is, is he canceling people? Yeah, he actually, uh, as of this morning or as of the other day, I should say, he canceled Kathy Griffin, who's probably the most high profile uh so so-called cancel on Twitter so far under the Musk uh, ownership. Did, did didn't he also go after Sarah Silverman? No, I, I checked and she still has an account, so she's she's in the clear right now. But uh, a lot of people are are changing their accounts from uh, making fun of Elon Musk to not or labeling it as parody as he's asking. So, so basically, see, if you label your account as a parody, you can make fun of him. But if it's not labeled as a parody, be there, gone. There, there's really a lesson here. I mean, if if you decide that you're gonna enter into a uh, business model, it 
should probably be something that you uh, have some wherewithal with, right? Some understanding of it. Here's another, because that's what's going on right now. And this is where it's going to get interesting. And now you're going to actually hear a little bit of uh, back and forth between Musk, Mr. Now Twitter, and uh, Dorsey, the former owner of Twitter. Let's go with, let's go with uh, the second uh, Twitter uh, hit. Uh, guys, let's share that. For our viewers who don't use Twitter, right. a blue check is a, a sign of credibility. It has historically been a marker of trust in that Twitter has said, we have confirmed and authenticated the identity of this person, which tends to be a politician or a news media personality or a journalist, uh, an academic, or someone that may be a popular voice in certain civil rights, civil liberties issues. Now you can buy it for eight bucks a month. Okay, that's the conversation about what's going on with Twitter right now and the fact that he's now going to be charging people to actually be. But here, here's the thing. And, uh, you know, I want to bring in, um, I want to bring in Pedro uh, de Costa. He is a uh, financial guy who understands this, has spent most of his life writing financial news uh, and is the former communications director for the EPI with his, uh, you know, Economic uh, Policy Institute. Um, so the interesting thing about social media, right, and, and Twitter is the perfect example of that, and I think we need to understand this, is that they essentially make money not by charging you for anything, but by warehousing you. The more of you they get and people like you, the more value they have, because then they go to advertisers and say, oh, look at all these people we have over here. Try and sell them your stuff. And they'll buy it because they belong to us. We warehouse them. But now that's always been the model, right? That's, that's what worked for Twitter. That's what worked for Facebook. That's on Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. But he's coming in now and saying, well, I, uh, I don't know how many, $4 million a day that I'm losing. I'm losing $4 million a day. So I've got an idea. I'm going to start charging people uh, to be on Twitter. Is that going to work? Is that going to work, Pedro? I mean, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, whether or not it's going to work from a business standpoint is outside of my expertise. But I can tell you as a Twitter user that the experience of the of the site has already changed since the takeover, despite reassurances to the contrary, right? The types of things that are trending, the level and kind of baseness of the memes that are coming across, the types of replies, the vitriol that's coming at you. Not that it wasn't already there. I mean, Twitter went from being a, a very pleasant place after it was first launched and it was kind of a siloed little compartment. Like during the financial crisis in 2008, it was, a, it was a great place. You know, it was like, that was where I went for true, genuine information from experts and you knew they were experts. Mm. Uh, but to your point, I think the verification beef is, you know, a little bit has been lost about it because the, the whole, you know, the counterpoint from the company seems to be, well, you know, what's wrong with $8 a month. And to your point, I think the issue is like losing the verification means that you don't actually know who's trusted and who's not. And by the way, that's the point of the, everybody changing their name to Elon, and, you know, as a parody is they're trying to prove to him why the verification system is needed in the first place. Uh, and he's apparently not reacting. So he wants to get, the, get rid of the verification unless of course you pay for the verification. Scotty, I saw you nodding your head. I completely agree. And, and kind of going off of the point that you said earlier was, and a lot of people don't realize this across all social media platforms, we're not the consumer. We're not the consumer. We, we are the product. Yeah. The consumer is the advertiser. <laughs> so he's basically taking the wheel and he's trying to rework it. Now, is there other ways they can make money? Sure. And I think they've tried some of those things in the past to fail. And other social media companies I know have tried to charge money up front and have failed. I, I don't I don't think this business model is going to work. And especially with the verification process, you're going to have, I mean, who's to say who buys the check mark now? What, what, what is the value of a blue check mark now? People, yeah. people fight over those things. They want those things because it, it's a stream of revenue. It says I'm somebody that you want to listen to and I'm verified to be that person. Now for $8, that's it. And also the business, the business class, probably the, the, the rich class doesn't want $8. Anybody can have it now. I don't want these peasants paying $8 for a blue check. <laughs> What's fascinating to me is I actually remember discussing that Twitter back in the day that Twitter should charge for like a continued verification status over time for journalists and for people that use it professionally, because of course you could expense it, you could do it. But I think the way that it was introduced, the way that he antagonized the entire sort of media and quote unquote elite establishment 
and then asked him for money. It became a sort of like, why would I give my money to a billionaire as opposed to why would I give my money to a company that I trust already and, and, and you know, whose service I value, basically. And, and this is my problem if I were a shareholder of Twitter, uh, or even to a certain extent, a shareholder of Tesla. I don't think this guy understands people. I don't think this guy understands relationships. I, I don't think this guy understands, Elon Musk understands, how to properly communicate to get the desired result. For example, he, he's going off now on pretending that he's going to turn Twitter into the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. Um, see, I don't think you can do that, but listen to what's going on. This is his conversation he had recently about that, and here's the reply from Dorsey. Elon Musk tweeting overnight, Twitter needs to become by far the most accurate source of information about the world. Former owner Jack Dorsey replying, accurate to who? Accurate to whom? Accurate to whom? And that's the problem, right? I mean, I would love to think that I could go to Twitter and essentially know what the proper answer is to a question or a story that I was trying to figure out if it was legitimate or not. Maybe it's just me, Scotty, I'll start with you, but that's the last place in the world that I would go for actual confirmation. Am I wrong? Uh, to a certain extent, kind of like what Pedro was saying earlier, there's certain people that you follow on Twitter that are established, that have a reputation, as the same as in in journalism. Uh, there's certain, uh, uh, whether it be the New York Times or Breitbart you're reading. I mean, you know, it's it's up to you but, which but, one but, you're going to trust but here's But here's my point. I get a feeling that Dorsey is saying to him, look, buddy, I've been running this thing for a long time now, and I've been tussling, toiling, fighting with that issue for the better part of the last decade, you're going to come in here now and just snap your finger and think, oh, yeah, I can figure this out. I'll make uh, Twitter all the news that's fit to print sort of thing. Uh, I, I, you know, Pedro, I, what do you think? I agree with Scotty, actually, that it, it, it can actually be the most accurate source in, in a sort of speed. Like something's breaking and you go to the people that you trust on that particular subject. Like, let's say a, a story is breaking in some small town. Hmm. I can go to the local news reporters in that town and see what they're reporting. I can actually see live video from the scene of whatever is happening in a particular you know, occasion. And I can I can have a heavy degree of trust in that because they they identify themselves as local news reporters and they they're verified yeah. as local news reporters so those two things help me put stuff together similarly if for instance if if i see a number reported as coming from the bls the jobs number i trust it even though it's it's only on it's only a tweet right but if if it's just a random person without sourcing and without any links, then I won't trust it. So you guys, so you guys both think, so, so you guys both think there's something to the idea of improving the business model by making it a place where experts are actual experts with bona fides, and those who aren't experts, the rest of the population, are not. And, and make sure those are well separated and well distinguished. And if they do that properly enough people will then recognize the expertise, depend on it, and it'll make Twitter as a whole more credible. Did I get that argument correct? You guys both agree with that? I, yeah, I, I, would, I would say that. But again, to who is credible, unfortunately, there's certain people within the population that don't believe the people that are credible. So if you're not somebody that believes what is or is not credible because it doesn't fit your alignment, whether it be politically or religious or whatever it may be, then no, it's not going to be reliable. So but, it's not so 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 when Trump comes out on Twitter and he says, I actually won the election and I won it by a landslide to the people who like him, he is super credible. Yes. And that's 35% of the population yes. of the United States. So we yes. haven't solved anything then, Pedro. Correct. I think that's right. I mean, that's that's why that's what I meant by it's, it's only as good as the internet, right? I mean, <clears throat> it's just a it's a it's a town square and you can say whatever you want on it, but the I mean, the, the broader point is just like the level of discourse that's happening and just uh, how much, you know, it's just kind of teenage humor creeping into Twitter in ways that I haven't seen, you know, like I find it really just kind of childish to be like just childish stuff and the tone 
you know, tends to be set. From yeah, I listen. Um, I was one of the early adopters, as you guys probably know. It's in my book. I talk about the fact that when I was on CNN, I was the first person to ever use Twitter and, uh, you know, mix it into my newscast, so to speak. I immediately got hundreds of thousands of people following me. And I invited probably more than that into Twitter as a result. And I felt good about it. I thought Twitter had a, a democratizing force, not just as a business model, but that it would actually do some good for us as Americans good for our country. I'm not sure that's the case anymore. uh, And I'm not sure that Elon Musk is the one who could go in and and remake that and bring us back to that place we used to be back in 2008, 2009, 2010, when people were bullish on Twitter. Do you you think, uh, Pedro, we can get that back? And do you think Musk is the guy to do it? I'm not sure that we can get that back. And I'm not sure that anybody else, you know, you know, to not put too much blame on his shoulders. It is a quixotic kind of mission because the product had already changed so much from its inception uh, and already become so politically charged in a way that, uh, you know, it was, it was just a lot, it used to be a lot easier to have conversations about subject matters. Like, you know, I covered the fed so I could have an entire, I could have an entire thread and an entire rapport with a, a different account without actually knowing their politics, you know? I just kind of just know their view on rates and the Fed. And that's kind of no longer the case. You know, after the last two election cycles, everything got blown wide open. So I'm not sure you can put that genie back in the box. What, what do you think of my argument that this is not a guy who knows psychology, social psychology, sociology? He's not a guy who understands the social sciences, no less socially speaking about just people in general. He's not a relationship guy. I mean, he can build great cars and can build a, a rocket engine that takes us, I guess, to uh, the moon or Mars or wherever the hell he wants to take us. But I don't see him as a guy who can figure out something that's based on relationship people and how they relate to people. You know, I always say if, if if you became very wealthy because you knew how to make lots of widgets, it doesn't mean that knowing how to make widgets translates into other fields. Uh, when people say, well, he's a successful business person, so we should elect them to be our governor or our president or our senator. I call bullshit on that. I don't necessarily think that works. Scotty, to you. Uh, it seems to work for uh, President Trump about him being a successful businessman and becoming president. No, but but, but, I, no, but you're no, but hold on. You're talking about the message. I'm talking about the um, execution. Um, and I, what, what I'm saying I was is too, being, a, being, a, being a great <laughs> business person doesn't make you a great president, doesn't make you a no. great senator, doesn't make you understand public policy. It just makes you able to sell the fact that you were a business person. It made a lot of money. Big deal. I mean, just look at his first couple of days in Twitter. I mean, from, you know, carrying around a kitchen sink to, you know, his little impromptu press conference or conference with employees that he did at the coffee shop to the way he fired everybody. He's not a people person. Yeah. Go watch any interview he's done. You can see there's there's a disconnect there. And it's not to mean that he's by far an idiot. That's not what he is. He's a genius for that matter. But you could tell he's the kind of guy that if you sat down and had a conversation with, you'd probably walk away scratching your head a little bit like, was that real? Just because there's that disconnect. And I, and, I, and I think with a company like Twitter that is so public and so many people use it and there's so much weight behind it, you kind of need somebody that can communicate a little bit better with public, with the public. Uh, the, the way he's communicating in the tweets, uh, it's just it's sloppy. And from what a lot of experts saying is Twitter's built on sticks. And if you mess with that too much, it's going to collapse. And I have to agree with that, man. I can't see under the way that it's going right now, it's going to last much longer. It's probably going to end up the way of MySpace. You know, this guy used to have a certain genesis qua about him. When I f- saw and first started reading about Elon Musk, I thought, wow, this guy's cool. This guy's a rebel. This guy is authentic. There's something about him. Um, I think that veneer is kind of gone ever since he got into this Twitter thing. And and, I, and I'm not sure it's going to, uh, you know, help his bottom line. He's so wealthy, he maybe doesn't give a crap. But I, I, I would think he, he should or at least his uh, stakeholders should care about what's going on with him. Pedro, you agree? Absolutely. A part of the point that you didn't mention, and and Scotty made this point, but that that the company is built on sticks. Oh, there's you see a lot of threads from these former designers and engineers on Twitter about just you know what it takes to keep a site like that running when say Queen Elizabeth dies or when major news happens and servers are like challenged to the max, right? Can you imagine the volume? I'm not a tech guy in any way, shape, or form, but I cannot imagine how much sort of cloud space it takes to run 
a site like that. And so apparently the, the part of the story that you didn't mention, Rick, about the layoffs is that apparently it just reported today. I don't know whose scoop it was, but um, I think it might have been Bloomberg. But the, the basic story is that they're actually hiring some of them back. And there's yeah. like internal messages <laughs> going around saying, well, if you know anybody who wants to come back, it turns out. Because, of course, when you come in at the top, man, you know, we've all I've, you know, worked at different large organizations like you come in. It takes it takes more than a year to understand the basic structure of a place and who really matters, regardless of title. Right. Who really matters where? So to come in and make such large decisions seems like, you know, very challenging for a company's survival. Next item. Too many politicians today, it seems, in America are pushing us, as I like to say, toward World War III. I'm not sure if it's going to be a battle between the United States and our allies and Iran and Russia and China, but we certainly hear a lot of inflated language by people like, well, let's start with Hillary Clinton. We are in a, a struggle between democracy and autocracy. Uh, we have seen she uh, and China consolidate his power. So even what used to be a collective base of power is now all in one person. We're watching Putin uh, abuse and misuse that power to literally rewrite history. We saw a very close election uh, in Brazil, we're seeing the uprising in Iran. This is a time of great ferment. And it is a time when the United States should be standing strongly on behalf of our values. I get a feeling, and she's not alone, when I listen to her and other uh, political leaders and policymakers, including, by the way, our own president right now, uh, President Biden, that we are just hell-bent on hating lots of countries. And with each passing day, if it's not a country we've invaded in the last 10 years, it's one that we're using rhetoric as if we need to invade them. Uh, I know that's great for Raytheon and several other weapons makers. I'm not sure it's good for America, and it bothers me a little bit. Pedro, I'll start with you. Well, this is well outside of my wheelhouse, so I'll, I'll, I'll tread cautiously. But I think I would, what I would say is that you know, we're coming out of a global pandemic that like stretched the boundaries of international relations uh, to, the, to the max, right? Everybody has a different policy approach. So it's not surprising that we have, on top of like the trade tensions that already existed going into this, right? It's not surprising that we have increasing geopolitical tensions. Uh, as to whether or not we're hell bent on staying at war, I mean, the war in Ukraine was wasn't wasn't arguably unprovoked invasion, and uh, mm -hmm. and so it's a really tough one, right? It's on the edge of of Western Europe, and and uh, but it's it's actually from an economic standpoint, it's been fascinating because it it revealed a lot of fragilities in the European Union and the Eurozone construct. Mm -hmm. The last Eurozone crisis, if you recall, in 2012, Greece was the, the lone per, you know, country out. Now Germany, for becoming so dependent on Russian oil, uh, has become the sort of pariah in the room, if you will. And that's kind of been an interesting shift to watch. Well, but it's almost like there's a, there's a real payoff here for the bigs. I said Raytheon. Obviously, I'm talking about defense contractors in the United States. $9 billion deal recently is what we signed that we're going to be giving more uh, aid. Uh, and I'm not talking about economic aid. I'm talking about weapons aid uh, to Ukraine. So yay, good for the guys who make the bombs, right? But in the, at the same time, not so good for the little guy who's a part of the U.S. economy who's getting squeezed because this is affecting our economy as well as, forget about it. I mean, the folks who are really going to be taking a hit are the folks in Europe who are going to see these uh, fuel prices going through the roof as a result of this tit for tat between the United States and, and, and Putin. So in the end, I, I'm just wondering as a citizen of the world, whether I should be uh, pleased with my country rattling these sabers uh, so much, Scotty. It's the age old question, man. I mean, what, what is the cost of war? What is the price of war? Is war worth it? And, and at least for the last 20 years of my life that I've been an adult, because I'm 38, uh, 39 now, so the last 20 years of being an adult, uh, all I've heard from the politicians, from most politicians, from most people on TV is war, war, war. You know, going back to 9-11 when I turned 18 years old to, to this day. And you can't help but notice the amount of people that make money off of it, that profit off of it, 
and it's you know they 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 rinse, wash, and recycle it again, and they they find another place to start a war, whether it be the color of the skin they're fighting it for, or the religion, or over democracy. That's interesting you say that because we seem to be now wanting to go to war with uh, Putin uh, mm -hmm. and Russia. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess in the American media's vernacular, that's the same actual word. Uh, we're making the guy out to be like Hitler, even though, I mean, he's obviously a piece of crap, but I don't know if he's Hitler. Um, and it's interesting because we've always hated the Soviet Union and Russia because they were, quote, communist lefties. Now they're more capitalistic than we are in many ways, and we still hate them. So, so you can make the same argument with China. It's like we wanted yeah. China to come into our sphere. We wanted to trade with them. In fact, we ended up giving them all our work. I mean, most of the stuff made that comes into the United States is either done in China or Vietnam. And now that we've got that with them, we still hate them. So yeah. it just seems like we just need to have enemies, uh, to quote the 48 laws of power. If you don't have an enemy, go get one. Um, and maybe that's what works best economically for the bigs. But I'm not sure it's good for us in the end, economically, for the nation, for us, for us Latinos who live in the United States and for everybody else who lives in the United States. I'd like to see a moderation of this thing, Pedro. I mean, Russian capitalism isn't exactly a major success story. So yeah, no, exactly. That's what I crony. I'll give you the gas stations because you're my friend <laughs> and we went to high school together. Yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little dicey, but... Um, you know, I, I think the difference now, I mean, the difference for me now is that watching watching the U.S. fight wars in the Middle East seem like a, a more distant kind of quest than, uh, than kind of defending the European borders. And so hmm. this one seems like it's something the U.S. had to get involved in. And now the question is, What's the degree of involvement and how do we get out and how messy will it be? But I mean, one of the interesting things is like Germany for, since World War II has been a decidedly pacifist country, an anti-nationalistic country. They don't even fly their flags around. But like this has energized very pacifist countries into becoming more militarized because it is a threat, you know, along their borders. Like now Finland wants to join the wants to join NATO and, and, and Sweden, if I'm not mistaken, and countries that hadn't previously joined NATO. Again, this is a little outside of my wheelhouse. So no, but they're but they're but, they're, but by the way, and you you make a great this is more galvanizing than you know than say like than than attacking Iraq under kind of dubious pretenses that were related to 9-11, but not really. You know? But you know, but you know what you're saying, right? I mean, you know what you're saying. Um what you're actually saying, or not you, but even media members have come out and said this and it's not even a whisper they've i've got i can play i can roll some tape and we can hear them saying this seems to matter more because these people have blonde hair and blue eyes that's what we're really saying so. you know no that, i think that's different no i think it's very different i can say that as a you know as a, as a brazilian where like blonde hair and blue eyes are sometimes vilified right like <laughs> um and, and so i i get the whole i i think it's more like the proximity of the threat rather than the, I'm, it's, I'm not making a sort of like, Oh, I can't believe this is happening in Europe sort of point as if I know, I know the footage you're talking about. Right? Right. I, I've seen that video. And I, I, I'm not that guy. And I don't come from that. No, no, no. And uh, please don't I think, don't think I, I think the world of you, you know? I, I, I'm not trying to say that you're I mean, It's just like having lived in, having lived in London and, 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 you know, spent a year in Paris and stuff like that's, it's literally right there. And so yeah. it's just a little bit different. Like, I think it feels different for, for a German person to hear that Ukraine is under, you know, under Russian invasion, considering the history. Right? But you so, can look at the argument the other way, that it's a country that's next to them and they've had a somewhat of an antagonist of a hot and cold or at least sometimes very antagonistic relationship with them for probably a thousand years where you can make the argument that even our own country, I love my country, but I have to question why we got involved in Libya the way we did or Syria or Yemen to that for, or, or Afghanistan and certainly Iraq, which was based on a lie. So uh, comparing one to the other, I'm left with, okay, so we're mad that these guys, uh, you know, invaded a country next to them that they have been antagonistic or had a hot and cold relationship with for a thousand years. But nobody's putting into context that we just did that in Iraq for I don't know what reason. And that's a hell of a lot further away, Scotty. That means that we handed we handed Putin some propaganda points by bingo. By doing that, yeah, that he gets to say those things. Right. Yeah. So 
Yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, we do keep fighting these proxy wars where we're dumping money into other countries to let other people fight wars on our behalf against other people that are fighting wars against on somebody else's yeah, behalf. That's right. It's, it's maddening. And, and, you know, I was thinking as you were talking, Rick, we keep letting this happen. But why do we keep letting this happen? Because we're busy fighting cultural wars. We're busy fighting about uh, about who gets to say what or who gets to wear what and who yeah. gets to dress like what. And, and that's what that's what dominates even the Twitter space. And meanwhile, you know who keeps winning? The Warhawks. On the left, on the right, in the middle, they keep winning because they well, keep letting us go to war, whether it be a big Afghanistan, Iraq-type war, or it's, you know, uh, because, something in Libya or something. You because, know? because the American psyche right now is all about silos, right? We, we live mm-hmm. in silos and we live in our chosen hero, whether it be Biden or Trump or this one or that one. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we, we've, 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 we've lost that wonderful thing we used to have back when, you know, Pedro worked at the Wall Street Journal where people would actually read the information, embrace the information, and then make decisions or ba- make arguments with their neighbors or their friends based on the information. Today, there is a... Uh, rapid uh, decline of trust of the information. Yeah. So we're left with just personalities. Well, what do you believe? Whatever Trump says. What do you believe? <laughs> you know, and, Whatever the Democrats say. And and that's, that's for my money, uh, as an American, uh, I would uh, advise our listeners of the Rick Sanchez podcast, if we continue down this route, it's not mm-hmm. going to be good. Pedro, I'll give you the last word on this on this topic. I would agree with that. I mean, that's one of the reasons I came back to journalism from being sort of in communications is that I wanted to be more flexible with my views rather than just, you know, repeat talking points, if you will. So, yeah, uh, that was my my experience with comms. And and you agree we're siloed as hell right now. I mean, right. It's impossible not to see it. So, I mean, I'm not sure that it's like I'm not sure people always say it's the worst ever. Maybe it is. I don't you know. I don't know. Other eras might have had their, you know, the, the civil the civil rights era was pretty uh, conflictual and pretty uh, pretty bloody, but uh, it certainly it, it feels terrible. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the big uh, push now. Item three: divided government. Um, it seems like everyone is cheering for it. Yay, we're so glad that now the Dems don't control everything. It's going to be divided. Uh, Looks like uh, the House and the Senate are going GOP. Uh, Looks like, uh, obviously, Biden's going to stay in the White House. And that's good because they won't be able to enact a lot of policies because most of their policies suck anyway. Uh, Good way to look at this situation. Are they right? Pedro, to you. Uh, I, I hate that view of the world. I mean, it's, it's really depressing, right? Cause it suggested you should just not, you know, why, why, why even think about doing good policy? If, if policy is always a mistake and you need something, you need paralysis to undo it. Uh, if we're striving for paralysis, that's pretty depressing. Uh, but wall street seems to think that like, you know, from a sort of, uh, fiscal perspective, maybe that it contains spending, one of the issues that might come up and that we may very well face is, and that might actually spook Wall Street eventually, is that uh, the ability of, of, of President Biden and in the future Congress to, if it does fall into Republican hands, to do anything on, like any kind of fiscal support to the economy if it falls into a recession hmm. would be severely limited. Uh, and so that takes away like a major usual economic tool out of the toolkit might force the Fed to, you know, we might talk, we'll talk about the Fed a little later on, but might force the Fed to have to react even more aggressively when a downturn does come. Are you sure about that? Because, you know, uh, I mean, uh, the policy under Trump changed because of COVID and uh, they actually enacted policy uh, to put, to, to, to put more money into the economy uh, Obama did the same when he was faced with the meltdown. Uh, Bush did the same when he was faced with the so-called Iraq war. Um, Biden's doing it now. It, it seems to me it doesn't matter whether you have an R in front of your name or an L in front of your name, uh, or pardon me, a D in front of your name. Um, American politicians have just learned now that that's, that's, the, that's the go-to. So if we were to go into a recession next year, it doesn't matter who. My argument is it doesn't matter, Pedro, who's in power. They're going to do it anyway. No. 
You make a fair point, but I think it's only when it's politically expedient for both parties. And in this case, it might be politically expedient for Republicans to want the economy to like not do so great so that they can move forward with momentum toward the 24 presidential elections. Our friend so Carlos, our friend, Car- our friend Carlos Carbello, uh, former congressman, uh, friend of the show, uh, known Carlos for many, many years. He was on MSNBC last night. Here's what he, here's his point on this. I actually think that uh, with divided government, we might have more cooperation to reduce energy prices, increase energy security in our country for Americans, and also to reduce pollution. So I'm a little more hopeful than most. He seems to be saying that when we're, we we come together only when we need to. So divided government will help them come together and find answers to our problems. I I I don't know what he's smoking, Scotty. I think he's full of crap. <laughs> <laughs> he may have been hanging out with me last night and had some of that good stuff, but uh, <laughs> I, I I don't know if I agree with that because I mean, number one, we're going into the back end uh, of a presidency. Like Pedro was saying, why would the Republicans want to work in a bipartisan way to make Biden look good? Because at the end of the day, people don't remember who the congressman in the fifth district of Florida was. They remember who the president of the United States was. Uh-huh. So so I can't see them allowing him to or doing things to make him look good that he can wear as a badge of honor. So I disagree in the silo that we currently live in in this country. The, only, the, the point that I think he might have been making is that potentially on, on the energy side, there might be more, more cooperation because this energy crisis has really forced the Democrats' hand on the Green New Deal and all yeah. this sort of stuff and forced them to recon, you know, reconsider the cost benefit of having to drill in, you know, domestically. And so in that sense, there might be greater cooperation if there's, you know, if there's some deadlock there. But, uh, but again, that's narrow, narrow scope for cooperation. <laughs> Item four. There's an argument that the Fed is going too far. You hear it all the time in the business sectors, all of them, uh, that they're overdoing it by not taking into account the lag that exists. Um, in fact, here's uh, none other than Jeremy Siegel, Uh, from the Wharton School of Business, supposedly one of the smartest guys out there, talking about this very thing. There's two housing indexes, and I'm talking about this because we are going to get the CPI. Remember, housing is 40% of the core inflation, which is what Powell talks about all the time. Um, If you use the current one, you actually get negative prices and rentals. If you look at the backward-looking one, you get positive ones. Uh, that make all the difference. Um, And so, you know, I was saying they're looking at the wrong indicators. They're looking at the wrong indicators. And by the way, those indicators, many would argue, including Mr. Siegel, are are too soon. We're waiting a month to see what the effect of the policy is. We need to wait longer because in the past, when things got really screwed up, it took a lot longer for things to get screwed up. So it's going to take Longer for things to get better. That's the argument. Nobody better than you to ask Pedro about this. Do you agree? So uh, here's the thing. Because the, the Fed is not, you know, going to this unaware. Chair Powell is all too aware that he's uh, kind of hanging his hat for monetary policy on very lagging indicators, the unemployment rate and headline inflation, which would be, you know, kind of the last to come down. We do see indications that some elements of inflation are ebbing, but they're afraid that the broad-based nature of inflation is kind of sticking around for long enough that it might start to affect consumers' expectations. And you could kind of get a wage price spiral where people start to demand higher wages to make up for the ground they lost in the previous year. And then companies charge higher prices and you could see where it goes from there. So I think they're actually, they're kind of intent on being willing to let the lags be lags because they they think that this inflation has gone far enough that they do need to, you know, push on the brakes pretty hard. They won't say it, but they kind of think that they have to crash the economy in some pretty substantial way in order to break the back of this inflation. And a lot of macroeconomists uh, agree, unfortunately. They have to listen, listen to listen to what you just said. And this is important. And everybody out there who's listening to the sound of my voice, you're a guy watching or listening to this show. You're worried about your job. And essentially what the Fed is telling you is, I'm going to have to do something that's going to hurt you. Uh, To quote Shakespeare, and I believe Macbeth, I must be cruel only to be kind. They're essentially saying, 
We want unemployment to go up in America. Yes, we want prices to come down, but we want unemployment to go up. And until we get there, we don't think we can fix inflation. Damn it, Pedro, that's a hell of a thing. It is. And the only positive spin they try to put on it is that like, well, in this recovery, we have an unusually large number of vacancy postings per, you know, per job opening. It's actually a record. And so maybe if we just cool the labor market a little bit, some of those posts will be, well, they'll have fewer job postings, but people will still get hired. And maybe the jobless rate will go up by a percentage point, but not that much. But there's not a very long, there's not a very, uh, uh, there's not a very persistent record. How should I put it? Like, it, does, it doesn't usually happen. The unemployment rate doesn't usually go up just mildly. Usually when it goes past a certain level, it keeps going. And so there's a big risk that we might actually see a fairly deep recession. So let me ask you the $60,000 question that everybody wants me to ask you who's listening to the sound of our voices right now. Are we, do you believe uh, that it's inevitable that we are going to have some type of uh, uh, lower growth and possibly a full-blown recession next year? Absolutely. Because, I mean, when the authorities are kind of usually the last to admit it, right? And when the Fed itself puts out a forecast for GDP for 0.2% growth, like annualized, that's basically them telling you that we're going to be in recession next year. Uh, so it would take, you know, a kind of a, a, a positive shock to the economy somehow for us to avoid a recession, especially if you take into account not just the Fed's own tightening, but the global tightening that's happening with other central banks around the world and the weakness that the European economy and the UK economy are facing, right? We don't just have economic issues. We have now kind of financial stability issues. We had a, a bond market crisis in the UK that had uh, potential implications for, for our markets. And so, so there are a lot of risks but, out there. But, but, but here's the thing. If you were going to look at the economy as a whole, we're gonna, let's, let's go ahead and separate it into two parts, right? There's, uh, there's, there's, there's Wall Street and then there's just the street, right? Uh, regular people, regular jobs, regular workers. Uh, and then there's the equity side, people who invest on Wall Street, the investor community. Uh, that recession you're talking about that's going to affect us next year, which one of those two is going to be hit the hardest by that situation? Well, I mean, workers always get hit the hardest because, you know, they have less income to fall back on than kind of big, wealthy investors. But it's an open question as to like whether, you know, the stock market tends to bottom before the economy. Mm -hmm. And so you could have a recession and have a massive stock market rally. The two are not mutually exclusive because the stock market tries to foresee what's going to be coming. And so if it sees that if it suddenly believes the Fed is going to be cutting rates rapidly and we're going to experience another burst of growth in 2024, say, then the market could rally into a recession. So we see the S&P now where? Something like 36 or something like that. I'm not sure where it is, but it's pretty low. Some people are saying that's pretty much the low. We're done. Uh, now in 2023, uh, we'll likely see uh, not necessarily the equities market, Wall Street, S&P, bottom out. But we will see people feel the crunch of a recession-type economy. Uh, so it sounds like what we're saying is it's going to be harder on the average Joe than it is Joe the investor. Yes, although I wouldn't rule out a deeper market crash either, to be honest. I mean, when, really? that London, when the stuff in England started happening, it felt a lot like the beginnings of the 2008 crisis where like, and I think it speaks, it speaks to the, the speed and lag issue that you were talking about, right? 475 basis points rate hikes, you know, three percentage points of interest rate hikes in four meetings is kind of an un almost crazy, almost unimpressive. If you had told me that in my whole career, I wouldn't have believed you that the Fed would do that. And I would have told you that the market would have, would have crashed beyond belief. So the Fed's, the Fed officials must actually be pinching themselves that they haven't actually crashed the system yet. And so, but they're trying to catch up to this inflation and they've kept going, but it does feel like with the speed of those moves, it takes a while. The lag effects don't, aren't just on the economic side. The lag effects are also on the balance sheets and on the losses that people experience in the bond market. And so there's still a lot of comeuppance to be had, I think, in markets that we shouldn't. I'm not so sure and, that we hit and, bottom. And just to be clear, we're going to get what? Uh, so everybody out there who's listening to us understands one more uh, 75 uh, basis points. And then after that, we'll see it start coming down to 50 and then 25 and then... They'll quit 
and it's hopefully clear it's not even so they've they've hinted that they would like to slow to 50 as early as december which is their next meeting mm-hmm. but it's unclear that the data we get between now and then will give them cover they need to see inflation come down a little bit and the job market is still strong and, and now they're actively to your point they're actively telling you that they need to see weaker job numbers before they stop right so the, so so Scotty is thinking he might want to finally get that fifth house for him and his wife. Am I exaggerating, right. Scotty? Uh, it's the sixth house. But <laughs> I, I, I'll let you go. <laughs> so uh, and he's thinking to himself, my God, that means interest rates. If I wait till the summer of next year are going to be something like what? I, pardon me. Mortgage rates that could be part, as high as seven and a half percent. What? What? What's that part is interesting because that they might have already peaked, to be honest, because mm-hmm. bond market did react fairly quickly to the Fed's even announcements. And so the mortgage market is the first channel of transmission for that. So not that Scotty would want to go out right now because it's already a pretty rough housing market out there right now, right? Uh, Very bad. have more than doubled since, uh, since, since the Fed got started, but, but it could be that we've reached peak mortgage rates. Like it would take, it would take a worsening of the inflation picture and additional Fed hawkishness for, for mortgage rates to go beyond the seven, seven and a half mark. So if I had to make a decision as to whether I want to deploy uh, whatever I have in my pocket right now and I could choose to get into the market and find some uh, great stocks out there like uh, Apple that's down like 35%, knowing that eventually it's going to come back up and I'll make that delta, uh, or I'm going to go out and spend it on a townhouse which I think eventually I'll be able to rent and make money on, uh, which which course of action is better, uh, uh, Professor Da Costa? Oh, man, that's a tough call. And that's why I'm glad I don't give investment advice because I, I would always be wrong. But like, yeah, I, I really don't know. I mean, I think I think it depends on your, to your point, if you're going to, if you're a buy and hold investor, like keep putting your money into the S&P, don't mess with your 401k, especially if you're not on the verge of retirement, you'll be okay, right? Right. Uh, and so, and, and, but, and with housing, if you're going to stay in the house, you have enough for the down payment, you can make the monthly payments by the house, but yeah. uh, don't overexpect <laughs> yourself. <laughs> yeah. And make sure you get a variable mortgage or something because it, uh, you better be on the ups. It's better to get those now when it's high. So it'll eventually come down as they say it will, by the way, by 2024, they say it'll start to come down a lot. In fact, by the middle of 2024, uh, let me just close with that. Do you buy that, by the way, uh, uh, Pedro? Do you think that's true? I think it's unpredictable, to be honest, because, you know, we were told that inflation was going to be transitory. And that's what all forecasters have been deeply humbled by this particular turn of events. I mean, uh, you know, a, a John Kenneth Galbraith once said that economic forecasting was invented to make astrology look respectable. So forecasters, <laughs> were, they're often wrong, but they were particularly humbled in this instance because they got it really, really wrong. And so well, now the problem is we don't have confidence in those forecasts and it's hard to make policy looking at the rear view mirror, which is kind of what we're doing right now. You know, it's it, th- these are confusing times. Uh, by the way, it was particularly confusing for me this morning. Um, I got up at uh, what I thought was uh, 6.30. It was actually 7.30. I guess we have this whole daylight savings time where we had to take the clocks, I guess, back, right? Forward, forward. Oh, yeah, we had to take forward there. <laughs> That's why you so, got it wrong. So, so then I went and and I got up and I said, well, I don't want to have my coffee yet. Let me just kind of see if I doze off. So I went over to the TV room and tried to do that. And, and then I got up and I was even more confused. Then I got, to, then I went back to our bedroom. My wife was getting out of bed, and I say, why are you getting out of bed? She goes, I can't sleep. Well, yeah, sure, it was six thirty, but we usually get up around. The whole thing just got so weird. So that, so then I had my little tissy fit. And I, and I went and I told my wife, that's it. We're going to go around the house right now. And we're changing all the clocks. And we literally were, you know, and we got a pretty large house. So there's clocks everywhere. And I swear, everywhere I went, I was more confused. One one place was 730, we were 830. The next place was 6. I was like, what the hell time is it? So... <laughs> Oh my God. It was just one of the, I don't know if you guys went through this too, but yeah, th- I uh-huh. don't know why we do this, but it makes me freaking crazy. Um, I don't even know if this is an economic story or advice that I'm giving you, but I will tell you this. I'm always harping on how important it is to have a routine, to have habits, 
to know where you are at all times. It was hard for me to do that this morning. I didn't know whether I was going to have a cup of coffee or eat a banana, you know? <laughs> this is an economic issue somewhat because <laughs> one of the reasons why this started was because during the war, they wanted to save oil going back years. Yeah. So to save to save oil for the, for the war effort, they changed the clock so we had more sunlight hours. And why we haven't changed it back, I don't know. I, I like daylight savings better than standard time because I like it being dark or light later or light later as opposed to getting dark at 530 now. But that's me. Yeah. Um, Pedro, you want to put a final touch on this? I was very thrown off myself. I woke up in the middle of the night. I didn't know which clock was right. Which one. I mean, thankfully, you just look at the phone, right? And the phone adjusts. Yeah, it does time. it automatically. That can, the phone can be your lodestar. But otherwise, I didn't know what was up, what was down. I also didn't know like what I would do for breakfast. I was, I'm totally with you. I'm a routine-based individual. And, and any diversion really like, yeah. especially on a Monday. Mondays are hard enough to get back on the horse, right? So then you're like, what What horse am I even getting on here? See, and he's the smart guy, and he got screwed up too. <laughs> Recently, I went to speak at the Latitudes Conference, love the Latitudes Conference in San Diego every year, where all the business-minded Latinos gather, tens of thousands of them. It's always such a great event put on by Gary Acosta and uh, Saul Trujillo, my partner, um, as well as uh, Emilio Estefan, who's also on uh, a member of that team. And, and yes. it's interesting, while I was in San Diego, you know what doesn't catch you up? Norm yeah, you're right. Your, your phone, at least your iPhone, I know, puts you on the right time right away. My, my MacBook Pro does not. So I would go on my MacBook Pro, and it still had me on Miami time, even though I was on San Diego. And you actually have to go in and change the settings because it doesn't. So... For the record, I was very confused in San Diego. I didn't know what the hell time it was. Also, um, but how's that any different than normal? So yeah, to make well, it more confusing, my, my bosses are in London, and they change times like two weeks before we do. So all of our morning meetings get completely uh, screwed up for like. Jeez. Well, listen, you guys have been great. Scotty, as usual, you're the best. Uh, Pedro La Costa, what a wonderful time we had having this conversation. Awesome. You know, what we try to do is have conversations about things that are relevant. We always like to make it a little bit, you know, about who we are, Latinos. I'm a former journalist. You're a former journalist. I think it's important to put these things in perspective, given the times kind of that we're going through right now. So um, we really think it's important to look at the stories of the day and ask ourselves, how they affect us, right? What, what do they really mean for us? And you don't get those answers by turning on Fox News or MSNBC, et cetera, et cetera. Not now these days, not, not these days anyway. So that's why we try and create a, 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 a conversation really that gives you uh, perspective. This is the Rick Sanchez podcast, which is a part of a podcast company called Agua Media, where we're soon to have 15 or 20 more podcasts like this one. And we're very, very excited about that. You can catch us on uh, Spotify. You can catch us on uh, on uh, Apple or wherever you get your podcast. And of course, if you're watching us on the, on, on the YouTube thing, subscribe. That's important. Hey, uh, Pedro, before we let you go, anything you want to pitch? Yes, I have a podcast myself. It's called FedSpeak. For anybody interested in, in the, the world of the Federal Reserve and interest rates, and I interview like current former Fed economists and policymakers. So check it out. It's also on Spotify, iTunes, etc. FedSpeak. FedSpeak yeah. is the name of the podcast. There is probably not a more important topic in America today unless Rachel Maddow gets her way and we start World War III. But there's nothing more important than uh, that, what he just said, Fed speak. So Fed speak with Pedro uh, da Costa. Look it up. I will. In fact, I might just go for a jog tonight with uh, Fed speak. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Pedro. Thank you, Scotty. That's it for us. And like we always like to say, dale, andale, vamos con todo and con latitude, Latino attitude. We'll see you, folks. Agua. 